there a doctor in the house? Doctor, doctor, give me the news. I got a bad case of loving you. Doctor. 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 And doctor. It's time for Advanced Medicine Monday with Dr. Rashid Batar. I'm a doctor, not a bricklayer. I'm a doctor, not a mechanic. I'm a doctor, not a coal miner. The doctor is in. The voice of health, freedom, and liberty, Robert Scott Bell. Once again, it's time for Advanced Medicine Monday, and Dr. Batar is with us. He's not in studio. He's on the road, and he's laser-focused. And uh, Dr. Batar, with your book, The Nine Steps to Keep the Doctor Away, teaching people how to take responsibility for every aspect of their lives, and especially when they're going in to see a doctor so they don't become victimized by doctors. There was a big story about uh, the fear still that exists among the American people about questioning their doctor, which is essential to any relationship. I think it's vital in order to invoke the healing process, Robert, that the doctor instill the confidence in the patient that's necessary to invoke that that healing cascade, and it's necessary for the doctor to know that the patient has the trust and confidence in, in the physician himself so that he feels comfortable in order to go into that sometimes difficult area because many times we're entering into an area of the unknown, and so we have to be able to think for the best benefit of the patient as opposed to medical uh, liability aspect or medical legally. And in order to do that, the doctor has to be confident the patient trusts them. Yeah, I think about the relationship with anybody. I mean, if you want to ask somebody a question, let's say they immediately become defensive and maybe they say something derogatory to you or maybe they act as if they are somewhat above or very much above you, that's not a good place to start. And you might be considering this is not the doctor we want to deal with. Exactly, and then sometimes it's just a personality conflict. I mean, the doctor may be great, but it just doesn't mesh with your personality. And I've had people that uh, that's happened with me where they've told me that they uh, that they believe in what I'm doing, but they've decided to go somewhere else, and that's fine. I, in fact, respect that because it's upfront. It's uh, it's mutually beneficial when two, both parties are able to be able to correspond on that level. I call it bold communication, and I like bold communication, and I think it's necessary in all aspects of relationships, exactly as you said. Well, I like that, bold communication. Now, we talk about taking responsibility. Some people kind of pay lip service to that concept. But if we look at the industries on the planet that have been dominating via government fiat, in other words, uh, demanding monopoly status, protection from government, like the vaccine industry, guess what? They got liability protection. They can kill a million people. There's nothing you can do about it. It looks like Monsanto has just attempted to do the same thing. There's a big story through Natural News and out, out there in the news. They call it the Monsanto Protection Act to grant the biotech industry total immunity over future genetically modified crops. You know, the issue that I have is not so much with Monsanto for trying to do that, because I think any industry or any market sector, if they could get that, would would try to get that. The issue that I have is that they actually allowed Monsanto to get away with this, because, you know, the, the problem with Monsanto asking this, as in any good business, you want to limit your liability, even if they're doing bad things that we, you and I understand that. But let's say in their 
disillusioned world. Maybe <laughs> they don't think they're doing the wrong thing, but the fact that the government would allow a market uh, sector, in especially something like agriculture and something that we have no idea what the burden, biological burden, and long-term consequences of genetically modified food are, for the government to allow a company like Monsanto to get away with that. That's Mm-hmm. Uh, not, not to get away with it, but to actually condone it and allow them to have a bill that's so blatantly right. obvious that there's something that could go possibly wrong. Well, I mean, P- you know, it's like me. It's like me saying, "Give me a free get out of jail card. And let me destroy whatever kind of crime I'm going to commit." Yeah. And, uh, just give me the free jail, get out of jail card in case I do something wrong. Well, there's a great deal of spiritual immaturity, if I can call it that, in this. They they put these riders into the 2012 Farm Bill and the 2013 Agricultural Appropriations Bill that would essentially force the federal government to approve GMOs, not only to limit life, but to approve them at the request of biotech companies and then prohibit all safety reviews of GMOs from having any real impact on the GMO approval process. So it, you're right on, on two levels there that the government, how would they are? They're the reflection of the people. Basically, the people have rolled over and said, yeah, do whatever you want to me. I mean, come on. Yeah, it's really preposterous. And, you know, we want to look at this from the toxicity perspective. It falls underneath the six toxicity on the factsontoxicity.com website or the seven toxicities I discussed in the book. Uh, This falls underneath the six toxicity food. And we're not talking about what's in the food. We're talking about what's done to the food. What's done to the substances that we ingest in order to nourish our system. And if we want to see what the possibilities are, and I think about this for a second, we know that the irradiation, the genetic modification of food, what the implications are, we're not fully yet aware of because there hasn't been long enough term that we've been exposed to that. But look at the other components of long-term consequences of modifying our food when you look at pasteurization and homogenization. Yes. And then you look at the you know, Pottinger cat study and what happened to the cats, what happened to the third generation of these cats when they started cooking the foods instead of feeding them the raw milk and the raw meat when they start cooking the meat and the antisocial behaviors and the chronic disease components that these cats started experiencing by the third generation. Well, that's a model that we're following, except that now when you start genetically modifying and you start irradiating the food, the pasteurization and the homogenization are mere drops in the bucket of the consequences that we're going to have to deal with. Mm. Yeah, it's really something that is, a, you think that we had learned enough already, but evidently they're going to push it one more time, or as many times as we allow them to do it. And I think part of our, being responsible, or our responsibility, is, is putting our foot down and saying, no, you're not going to violate our food sovereignty, the sanctity of our food in this way, that we would not even know what has happened to the food by the time we are made ill by it. Bob, this brings to mind again what we've talked about so many times, how our forefathers were able to 250 years ago predict some of these things that we would have to, these challenges we would have to deal with. And it just amazes me how they knew it. But to quote Thomas Jefferson, when a people allow a government to dictate the food that they put in their mouth and the medicines that take into their bodies, their souls will soon be in the same sorry state as those who live under tyranny. And I think I've done, I've quoted this before, and this is actually what I said to the medical boards during my last battle with them, to the North Carolina Medical Board, but it's just shocking to me how the forefathers were able to predict it. I mean, it's almost like they had a crystal ball, isn't it? Yeah, it really is. I mean, they, they knew history so well, and so many of us grew up in government indoctrination centers, i.e. public schools, 
that we, we lost the connection or maybe we had to come out and find it after we got out of school, in my case, to say, wait, 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 there's a link here. This was happening there. It reflects very much on what's happening today, whereas in school it was just the date that something happened. It was disconnected from everything else. And in that way, they were able to control millions of kids that now are adults that don't know the links here. And, and what are the implications to the next generation? I mean, we're talking about the kids now not knowing what happens to the next generation beyond that. Oh, yeah. It's it's serious. By the way, I want it, the, the link here is to naturalnews.com, the article. It's covered very well. And Jack Kingston, who's a Republican from Georgia, was really the author of this writer that would give the uh, biotech industry carte blanche, give credit to Representative Peter DeFazio. He's a Democrat out of Oregon. He introduces an amendment to kill the Monsanto Protection Act. So, as you know, we've come out in favor of and against Democrats. Repul- it didn't matter. We talk about the principles of the people, what they're bringing forward here. And so we have to act here. The Organic Consumers Association has got some good stuff, as well as the Alliance for Natural Health. We've got all the links up in the blog notes at robertscottbell.com. How has it been out on the road? What's the awareness, whether it be food, medicine, etc.? I mean, you're traveling all over. It's hard to keep up with you, Dr. Bittar. Well, it's uh, not out of pleasure. As you know, Robert, a lot of is necessity, but they are... There are opportunities that are coming uh, that are coming to me that are necessitate my traveling yes. and the opportunity to spread the message more so. And as you know, soon we'll be starting the advanced medicine seminars, which you're going to be on the road with me. So we'll be even traveling more. Oh, my goodness. Well, listen, we're going to be doing everything we can to uh, protect ourselves from the EM fields and the transportation security theater that happens along the way. Well, that's one of the reasons that when my conversation with Mike Adams took place a couple of days ago about the advanced medicine seminars, it was interesting what he said, because I wasn't sure why he didn't want to travel, but he told me, he said, it's actually the TSA. He goes, I have done so much and said so much against these, and he very affectionately referred to them in some uh, some term that I won't repeat on the radio, but <laughs> uh, you know, it was very interesting what he said, that that was his major reason and concern for wanting to not travel, because... He was uh, he was concerned that he would be identified from the beginning, and they would uh, you know do a very thorough rectal examination of him to make sure he wasn't packing any drugs or something. Yeah, well, yeah, that is the thing, and he has been very vocal right here on this show as I've as of I, and I think it's a it's a legitimate concern because we've seen the things that have been done around the country to people that you know not like Mike or me or you, but I mean like little old ladies and children. I mean it's it's just horrific the things that we've been putting up with. You're absolutely right, and. And he is right to be concerned because at a certain point when you become a voice of reason in a sea of insanity and people start to gravitate to that voice of reason, then those that are vested in the insanity will do whatever is necessary to stop that voice of reason from being the beacon that attracts everybody. Yes, yeah, boy, and we've got in so many areas. I know that because of your, uh, let's say, responsibility as a physician, we do talk about the physician world a lot, but it's always to, it, with the, the mind to help those that are in it as well as those that are utilizing any of the services of it. Yet I covered yesterday, Dr. Batar, this is a bizarre story, and this is out of California. I believe that's where you are, but there was a story. You know all these drug mills or, or what we say uh, prescribing pain medications? This has become the big issue. It used to be illicit street drugs. Now it's the FDA-approved drugs that are being uh, addictive and uh, abused? Yep, yep. Yeah, there was a story. They did a sting operation on a physician. He was in his 70s, so it's not like he'd been around the block once or twice. He'd been around. And one of the undercover people, a lady, gave 
gave him an x-ray of herself to say, listen, look, my, I'm, I'm in pain here. Here's the x-ray. And it was an x-ray picture of her dog, and he went ahead and prescribed her the drug anyway. Wow. And I was, her dog? Yeah, I was saying either she was really ugly or he just, I don't know what happened. <laughs> no, that's, that's amazing. And I guess they're trying to crack down on the fact that a, that a doctor is actually reviewing the studies and reviewing the components that they're supposed to review before prescribing these drugs. But then, you know, Robert, they create this mundane and draconian type of what they call standard of care. Yeah. And the doctors will just go through those steps in order to appease the beast, but they don't even care because they're not even relying on it. So this guy probably didn't even look at the x-ray because he probably, I mean, looking at x-rays is not really an adequate determination of whether the person needs a medication or not, especially for pain. Because, you know, that's a, that's a clinical diagnosis. And you look at the person's heart rate, you know, you see the edema, the erythema, and the area of the injury, if that's what it is. Yes. Uh, you evaluate them based on the history. But looking at an x-ray and then deciding that they're pain medicine, that's absurd anyway. So if, if the state requirement is you have to look at an x-ray to make the determination, and I know that I don't need the damn x-ray to see <laughs> whether the patient needs medication, and then to show whatever kind of x-ray they're going to put up there, your mind's not even registering it because it's not even a criteria that you're looking at. You know, it's kind of like a soldier. They go through basic training, and then when they went to when they got to Vietnam or they got to the ground in Iraq or wherever, yeah. then your squad leader tells you, "Okay, everything you learned, you need to stop and get it out of your head. You want to live, follow what I do." Right. And so there's a practical standpoint, and uh, or when medicine we call it the clinical years, and then the didactic years. And the didactic years are the book learning, which some of that's important, the biochemistry, the physiology, but then you know they teach you the pharmacology and how to prescribe more drugs, and then you go into clinical medicine, um, but once you get through your clinical medicine, everything comes back to following whatever this absurd and primitive and barbaric sometimes standard of care. Yes. And so if the x-ray is something that they're, doing, they're supposed to follow because of a requirement, but they don't really use it in their own real clinical uh, practice or in their clinical experience, they have seen that that x-ray is unnecessary. Then I can probably see the guy probably just eyeballed it and didn't even look and see sure. the human X-rays. Like that. there's an X-ray there of something. It could have been a car. It could have been of a bolt. <laughs> yeah, here you go. And, Get, take your drug. Well, it's it's pain pill mill, as they say, and it, it is a sad state because it tells you where a lot of the American people are right now that they just want to be on pain medication. We know there is legitimate pain issues out there. We do know that. But so much of the addiction, so much of the demand, it means that many people are just lost. They're unhappy with where we are. When we come back from this break, Dr. Batar is on the road, but he's with us here for Advanced Medicine Monday. Check out his book, The Nine Steps to Keep the Doctor Away, bestseller, international, runaway. It's great. And of course, we're going to talk about lots more healing issues today with Dr. Batar on the Robert Scott Bell Show. All the links up at robertscottbell.com. If you're looking for FDA-approved radio... You're listening to The Wrong Show. This is The Robert Scott Bell Show. Taking on bureaucrats and corporations that would stand in the way of health freedom. Here's Robert. 
So if you want pain medication, just bring in an x-ray of your cat or your dog, your hamster. You might get some. But, you know, I joke about it. It's not totally a laughing matter, Dr. Batar, because it's like police state medicine. So much of modern medicine has become, because of the monopoly licensure, it's backfired on the doctors who thought, yeah, okay, we've got special privileges here. But anytime you ask special privileges of government, you've got to be careful what's going to come back down the pike eventually. You know, that's a true statement. It reminds me of something that my partner said to me years ago in my lab. He said that the system, the government system, he saw the IRS come after his father and and drive him almost to the grave. And he made a comment to me, this is probably 15 years ago, it was a very interesting comment. He said the system is designed to chew up their victims. And when they don't have any victims left, if they can't find a, quote, criminal or somebody that they feel should be reprimanded in some way, fashion, or form, then they will start to actually create their own criminals. They will make an individual into a criminal and then grind them up. In other words, the grind itself is necessary. It needs its victims. And if it doesn't have any victims, and when I'm, when I'm saying real victims, I mean actually the people that the system is designed to protect the public, I'm so to say. Yes. But if, if it doesn't have enough fodder, it will create its fodder from good people. And it's a very true statement. If you start looking around, you start seeing people that were wrongfully accused, wrongfully prosecuted, wrongfully in prison. In fact, yesterday, in a very rare scenario, I happened to have uh, a, a dinner appointment with some friends, and we met in a restaurant that had some big screen TVs, and they had CNN on. And the sound was muted, but at the bottom, this woman was interviewing some man, and at the bottom it said, FBI to investigate wrongful imprisonments. And how many times have we heard of people that have spent 15, 20, 30 years in jail only to find out that they were innocent, and then they've been freed? Now, of course, that's probably, you know, few and far between, but the point being is the system is designed to create. It doesn't care whether or not there's anybody to go after or not it will start to create its own fodder and make people pay the price even though they haven't done something wrong. Yeah, and that that should be a warning to anyone who aspires to have some form of licensure because there's still a push. Remember we talked about the Steve Cooksey scenario in North Carolina where the dietetics board went after him. We have a word, and last week you missed this because it was after we did our Advanced Medicine Monday segment last week, it was amazing because some of the dietitians are so disgusted with their own profession that they began leaking documents from the ADA that showed their only express intent purpose is to try and find, like you said, victims, target people. We've got to justify these licensing boards. We've got to find these people. And that's why they went after someone like Cooksey, and it's backfiring on them because now we have the smoking gun. That's amazing. That is really amazing. And it's I think indicative of, again, the 2012 increase in consciousness that we've been talking about, Robert. Yes. You can no longer keep these things hidden. I've had many conversations, people asking me, every day there seems to be something else going on, and on some some level they're, they're crying out because it's, it's too much, and I'm saying you should be grateful for this because no longer can they get away with the things they used to be able to get away with. Every day the, the light is shining on it and showing us all. It's almost like a flock of ostriches that have had their heads stuck in the sand and slowly, one by one, the head is being pulled up. <laughs> I see. Kind of straight, 
I just got a strange image in my head of that happening. Yeah, I know. It's like somebody's kicking the butts of the ostriches. They're lifting their head up and going, huh, huh, what? Where have I been? Oh, my gosh. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Oh, my goodness. Well, it really is that. The consciousness is shifting. We talked about it early on this year, and it's actually playing itself out. Mike Adams did a hilarious thing. I talked with him last hour about it, uh, a spoof, if you will. He, He does this other side of him. He loves to do the comedy and different things we love to do here from time to time as well. He took a popular song, and he changed it around you know like remember weird al yankovic yep yep so he he did something like that and, and he na- renamed the song how do we get so dumb and lazy and it's really hilarious and people are taken to it it's gone viral and we realized that most of the people are not open totally to this message but if you make them laugh you entertain them you can give them the little 10 20 percent they're going to get it eventually robert i would disagree i think more people i i think in my uh, viewpoint and from my experience I'm finding more and more people will actually initiate the conversation they will want to know they have inquiries and they they are no longer put to write you up as a nut job because you've got a strange viewpoint in fact the strange viewpoint that may have been construed as a strange viewpoint 15 years ago is becoming more and more not only accepted but Almost a call to arms. I had a meeting yesterday with a gentleman from Sri Lanka, and after our conversation, after our meeting, he was one of the six people in the meeting, and he told me, sent me an email, he said, it's so refreshing to see somebody that is so aware of not only the political situation, but actually what it implies, and, and has the greater consciousness, and more importantly, is willing to talk about it, because people usually of influence are not, even if they do believe it, they don't want other people to know about it, and they keep it quiet. But I'm finding that everybody I'm coming in contact with, everybody from not only the gas station attendant, but the uh, you know CEO of a Fortune 200 company, or uh, the uh, my attorney or my accountant or my you know advisor, whatever it is, more and more people are becoming aware, and it's awareness on another level too. It's it's this uh, conscious knowledge that they must be responsible for themselves. The number of people, and I hope this doesn't go down, go down the wrong tangent here, but the number of people that I have met that actually have gone out and purchased a handgun or a rifle, the last of the last that you would expect to ever go out and buy a weapon. Yes. You know, it, it's just appalling. When you have a 76-year-old grandmother who's done nothing but preach peace and has no interest in hunting, goes out and buys a handgun, you <laughs> okay, Why? Yeah. Why are they exercising that that amendment that they, that we have granted by the U.S. Constitution, the right to bear arms? Again, our forefathers knowing that this would be one way for the public to always be in control. Yes, and, and to strengthen your perspective there, I, I would not argue, because I just got a nice message from a pharmacy worker, Valage Kali student out there in California. He's in L.A., and he says, I listen to your show all the time. And he's working for a major pharmacy company, you know, like one of the corner drugstores. But he's actively looking for employment at places like, he says, Co-Opportunity, which is a nice health food co-op out there in Santa Monica, because he he wants, he's desiring natural health. He's seen the disaster that is the drug-based model. And here's a guy that you'd think would have gone stuck on a career path. And he says, nah, I'm making a better choice now. And I'm grateful for you guys talking about this stuff. Yeah, and it transcends even the pharmacy or the, ph- the the pharmacists or the doctors. It's other people in other industries even. I mean, this Fortune 200 CEO 
which I won't mention by name, but he is, I mean, his company did $16 billion last year. In fact, our mutual friend, uh, Sherry, and I, again, just in case people can figure that, Sherry Tempany, mm-hmm. uh, she's the consultant for this company. And the passion that this man has for making the public aware, but his personal responsibility is his 65,000 employees worldwide, and his desire to make sure that before he has forced retirement to ship the company's insurance policies to reimburse providers that are truly taking care of people's health, it's amazing. I mean, this guy is almost like a tireless warrior. You would think that as a CEO of a major 200 Fortune 200 company, yes. he'd have all these other things, but I think 90% of his time is spent on this. Wow. He is so focused about it. They're They've got, you know, the reimbursement company that deals with reimbursing the insurance. Uh, let me give you just one big example that he did. Sure. I, I couldn't believe it. I, I knew right away this guy was the same thought process as us, Robert, when I found out that he wanted to stop reimbursing for amalgam placement and start to incentivize those that were getting porcelain or uh, whatever other type of fillings as opposed to the amalgams. And so when he said blanketly, you know, we're not going to pay for amalgams and we're going to pay for the porcelain, his attorney said, you can't do that. You can't just, boom, radically make that shift because then people are going to say that you're, being, you're forcing them. And, right. And after enough adequate legal counsel, he, it was determined that he could do that, but he would incentivize the, the process gradually. So he went the first year by saying, okay, if you want to have a mercury filling, amalgam filling, that's fine. That's your right. And you can choose whichever one. But if you do the porcelain... We will give you 80% reimbursement, and of course you get 80% reimbursement with amalgams. The following year, we will give you 80% reimbursement for the porcelain, but now only 60% for amalgams. Nice. And the next year, <laughs> it was 80% for porcelain down to 40, 40% for amalgams. And he went all the way down till eventually amalgams got zero reimbursement. And he got contacted by the state dental boards and, and uh, you know, other people that advocated the use of amalgam, mercury amalgam fillings, saying, you can't do this, you don't know anything, you're not a dentist, you're not a scientist. He's like, I don't have to be a scientist. I know what it did to me, I know how it affected my health, and I got the stuff out, and I don't want my employees worldwide to have to suffer from the same problem. Well, I have to, I have to say, if he's plugged into Dr. Sherry Tenpenny, then he's got to know even more intense information on the vaccine issue, which, as you know, the, the world religion is the Church of Biological Mysticism, and they are pushing this population reduction agenda through vaccines for all it's worth. Absolutely, he is. and We talk probably two or three times a week now. He calls me often, and, and we have some great, great discussions, but he's a, he's a good, good friend. Oh, man, I'm so encouraged to hear this. Like I said, a lot of people are still under the impression that the power isn't with us. It's with them, so to speak. But no, they, they're losing their power bases eroding as every day people look up and see every little scandal, every little absurdity occurring. And with that, their power base erodes. And that's why they must desperately try to th- throw that blanket over everybody again. But it's just not working the way it used to. You're absolutely right, Robert. And you know that for me, I don't make friends that easy, but it had to take something like this to allow a person to fall, to come into my own personal uh, circle of trust. And this man has shown me that his goal, he has nothing to profit from this. You follow what I'm saying? He's, yes. He's doing this as a genuine concern. He had a terrible time himself until he got the amalgams out of his mouth, until he experienced the benefit for himself. And now he wants to make sure that before he goes through mandatory retirement in the next two years, that he's implemented enough changes 
on a, at least a global scale within his own company, because it is an international company, to influence as many people as he can. And, you know, most people at his juncture in life, in his stature, in his position, really wouldn't give a crap. They just, you know, they're increasing the shareholders' earnings by 400% over the last 10 years as they've been CEO. Uh, everybody's happy with them. They just want to get their, their right. retire with yeah. their 50 million uh, parachute and the 60 million annual salary, whatever it is, and, and they're happy. They don't have something that's driving them. And this guy, as a CEO of a Fortune 200 company, you would think that he would have so many other things to keep him occupied, but he has gotten everything down to a perfect science. Everything is a system. He's got his manager in place so he can actually uh, concentrate on his passion, and his passion is to improve the health status. That's beautiful. Many people on the planet, but especially his 65,000 employees. Well, I, I re- find that very conventional. Dr. Batar, I realize he probably won't be able to go public on this stuff, but I'm glad to know he's out there. would love to discuss anything we can to help move that along, and it's very heartwarming to know that, because you know, if you go fully too public, we've seen issues like this where it backfires on those even with a lot of power and a lot of money. They don't play around at that level, but at the same point, the grassroots now unplugging, that's something they can't contain or control. One person? Yeah, maybe. One company? even big yeah maybe but not millions and millions of people who are unplugging now you're absolutely right robert and he probably wouldn't give a crap anyone because he's he's in that position where he can he has a great deal of influence but i I don't know whether he would care so that's one reason i'm not saying his name but maybe we'll one day even have him on the radio show who knows yeah well we're open to that you know if it always moves the consciousness forward as well as supports the mission here to bring the power to heal back to the people uh, we got to take a break here. We'll be back with Dr. Batar after a while on the Robert Scott Bell Show, Advanced Medicine Monday. We look forward to this every week to kick off the week in high healing style. Thank you, Dr. Batar. Hang in there. We'll be back after this. The Robert Scott Bell Show. in the health world through the power of radio. It's the Robert Scott Bell Show. Back at it with Dr. Rashid Bittar. He's on the road, but he's focused, and we are covering lots of healing stories. This one's interesting, Dr. Bittar. Just came out yesterday in the Sunday review of the New York Times opinion pages. The ecology of disease. They're actually acknowledging the destruction of nature, giving rise to strange and aberrant new infectious diseases. Robert, this is something that is so important and so ignored in traditional medicine. In fact, a perfect example of this is the H. pylori and how for decades this wasn't even recognized. The reason I think it wasn't recognized was because it wasn't an issue. People have said, well, we just now discovered it, but I don't <laughs> think there was, there was anything to discover previously Yes, because of the... the uh, lack of NSAID and AIDS of the acid pump inhibitors, but then as those terafates and then the tagments, the antex, the well, the H2 blockers, and then eventually the prodlosex, these acid pump inhibitors became more and more prevalent, and we started to decrease the acidic environment within the stomach, which is at a pH of 1, as you know, then and only then, I believe, did these other strange, previously undiscovered bacteria, such as the H. pylori, start to rear their ugly head. And why? Because they were they were in a more opportunistic environment. There was a reduced pH. In other words, when I say reduced pH, the lower the pH, the better in the stomach, obviously, but there was a reduced pH or a more alkaline pH, I should say. Yes. So the pH up to 2, 3, 4, 
and then these bacteria that are resistant start to develop, meaning that they wouldn't have survived in a pH of 1, an acidic pH of 1, but in a 3 of 4, they're resistant enough to the acid that they can now become uh, viable. And so that's just one example of many yes. that ch- changing the ecology has allowed these various types of pathologies to start becoming rampant. Well, and even we go further into the gastrointestinal tract, we talk about a, a Clostridium difficile. I mean, I, in the 90s, I never heard about this infection. And suddenly, when they put out more of the proton pump inhibiting drugs and more of the Nexiums in the Prevacid, suddenly all of these old people that are on all of these meds are coming up with strange, aberrant new infections. Absolutely. In fact, we see this with many of the infectious disease processes. We see the traditional antibiotics that were very effective now becoming resistant to various types of bacteria. We start seeing the methyl resistant staph aureus, the MRSAs that are out there all over the place. We see this happening constantly. The resistance of bugs to medicines that were used traditionally for pharyngitis, for uh, the otitis medias, the upper respiratory infections, the pneumonias, it's all over the place. Well, look, it's better late than never that these public health experts are acknowledging the ecological factor into their models. I'm not saying that they're fully understanding what they're saying, but it's a sign that they can no longer resist the inevitability of the alteration of the paradigm that we, you know, we must look at disease differently going back to Antoine Béchamp and Claude Bernard. And this is uh, hopefully an evolutionary process which where, where they will... They're already been forced to look at things that they haven't previously entertained, and now hopefully that will lead to the evolution where they will start looking at toxicity and the implications of the toxicity aspect on these chronic diseases. Because remember, the Center for Disease Control, when they have a problem that they can't identify, when they don't have a clear ideology of what caused a certain sector or a certain region or a certain endemic situation to occur, they always send out two teams. We only recognize the CDC for sending out the infectious disease team, but there's a second team that's also sent out, which most people don't realize, and that's the toxicology team. There's always two teams that are sent out. So we talk a lot about antibiotics and antivirals and you know, antifungals and anti-this and anti-that, but we don't talk about the toxicity aspect. Yet, from a Centers for Disease Control perspective, they are looking at the toxicological component. So now that they're looking at this resistance aspect, and the ecology changing and leading to certain resistant types of strains of, uh, of pathogens, hopefully that's just an indication of where we're going and the next step will be, hopefully, toxicity and toxicology. Well, that, that would indeed be huge. It'd be a, a sea change on the planet-wide level because so much of allopathic pharmaceutical medicine has kind of we've woven a web or, let's say, dropped its net over the entire planet to try and control how we view disease. And they're rapidly losing that control. But, of course, some of these establishment-type groups or, let's say, governmental agencies, as you said, even within them, they've always had aspects of this that acknowledged it, but they were largely ignored or put aside to give the virus hunters the starring role. You're absolutely right, Robert. The only issue is that that's the part that the public is aware of. But the truth of the matter is that the toxicological teams were always a part of it. They just didn't get the limelight. They were kind of yeah. like Tonto instead of the Lone Ranger type. You know what I mean? They, <laughs> yes. they, they weren't the limelight. They were the, 
Robin, not the not, not the, the Batman. Batman right? But. They were the sidekick. Well, this you know the the sexiness of the virus hunter. It's like, oh, we've got to sleuth it out. And uh, you know, I'm thinking it's pretty cool to sleuth out a toxic poison and go, hey, we can remove Absolutely. it. But but it's not as sexy in the end to say, oh, well, you mean all we got to do is clean up our mess? Yes. <laughs> You're right. You're right. And I think it is becoming. I think it's transcended what's sexy now. It's clearly evident that it's not effective to just look at the one aspect. And even though the CDC, the political aspect of the Centers for Disease Control, and then how they deal with this on a Mexican bazaar level where there's negotiations between congressional members that say call the CDC and well, why are you doing this, why are you doing that, because they're industry, uh, representing certain industries. Uh, even though that's occurring, the toxicological group, they've got a minor role, but they still are there, and they've still got their foot in the door. The people that led to the advent of removing lead out of gasoline, for instance, they're yes. still there. And they were ridiculed for many years until they finally got to that point that uh, the, the lead was taken out of the gasoline. And some of these people are concerned about the mercury. In fact, as I told you, in a private conversation in 2006, my second meeting with the Centers for Disease Control, the head of the laboratory division in confidence told me when I asked him, what's the number one substance that you are afraid of, as a CDC officially afraid of? He said, officially afraid of? And I said, well, that you're afraid, that you're concerned about. He said, we are concerned. And the number one thing, and he thought this was like I was trying to, you know, trap him. Uh, we had a good relationship and, you know, it was humorous. But he looked at me and he said, if you ever state this in public, I will, and use my name, I will deny it. But he said, the number one concern for me and my division of CDC is mercury. Yeah. The number one public health concern. Now, publicly, it's a different thing. Oh, absolutely. But, it and he's having to fight the the political system within the CDC. So you know, we, you know, when we blanket refer to certain bodies as being as having fallen asleep at the wheel. Now I would I don't know if anybody in the FDA that's actually doing any good work. I think that they're all a bunch of uh, <laughs> uh, yahoos that are just trying to justify their existence and trying to essentially not trying to but essentially carrying out the mission or the orders of their masters, which directly or indirectly is a pharmaceutical cartel, but at the Centers for Disease Control, I know for a fact they are good people that are trying to do good work, even in the face of adversity that's being caused within their own system. Yes, I, I know, and it's rough, too, because the public face is the one that's the evil face, and it's the one that's denying mercury, denying thimerosal, denying vaccines have anything to do with anything, and yet on an international level, uh, there are good people fighting a fight on a, on a treaty level, and I'm not into so much treaties because they seem to supersede Constitution, but when our own government has abandoned the Constitution, you may have only one way to ban the mercury in medicine and vaccines itself through that, but our own delegation is fighting tooth and nail against those good people that are trying to get mercury out of this stuff. Right. And, you know, the important point is that at the CDC, even the good people, they didn't admit that the vaccines had anything to do with it. And I think politically you can't. You can't say that, you know, it was um, our negligence because then they're having to admit something on a political level, then they're they could be held liable and et cetera, et cetera. So they didn't come out and admit that, but they clearly said that the number one public health concern was mercury. And so when you say that the number one health concern for us unofficially is mercury, then by definition you have to include 
not only the mercury amalgams and not only the thimerosal and the vaccines, but the combustion of fossil fuels and the other methods of mercury toxicity from the waterways and you know all these other types of contamination that we're talking about. And of course, as soon as you add an ethyl group or a methyl group or any type of uh, uh, organic component to, to make it more similar in the body, it becomes exponentially more relevant. Yeah, absolutely. Listen, when we come back from this break, we're going to wrap up Advanced Medicine Monday with Dr. Batar. He's on the road, but like I said, Sharp is uh, focused that we love here. Uh, we're going to talk about the vaccine issue. There's an astonishing uh, uh, move to create a vaccine for a disease that does not yet exist. <laughs> I'm not kidding. We're going to talk about that and more on the Robert Scott Bell Show with Dr. Rashid Batar. It's Advanced Medicine Monday. The Robert Scott Bell Show. Robert Scott, the Robert Scott Bell Show. Wrapping up today's Advanced Medicine Monday with Dr. Batar. One story I covered yesterday, uh, Dr. Batar, I had to have you comment on. It was bizarre because they're really trying to create diseases so they can create vaccines for them, even before the disease is in existence, may never, ever be in existence at all. And I, I thought, man, I, I thought I'd made it up, but no, I, I didn't. It's bizarre. And my dear friend Ginger Taylor from the Canary Party wrote this after I covered it. She says, to my friends who still believe that the vaccine program is a legitimate, uncorrected field of medicine, uh, vaccination has moved from addressing a disease that you will get that will kill you to a disease that you will might get that will kill you to a disease that you might get that probably won't kill you to a disease that you probably won't get and probably won't kill you now to a disease that does not even exist but might someday so put that you follow me here it's just getting more bizarre it really is and if you look at the parallel to this with the h1n1 that's not quite the same thing but if h1n1 if you look at the history of that they first created this vaccine for the h1n1 and then they patented the virus um, but when you look at the virus, it apparently was patented about nine months prior to the first reported case of H1N1 anywhere in the world. So, you know, my first question is, how do you patent a virus? And then, two, how do you create a vaccine for a virus that up to that point hadn't existed? And then, more importantly, if you create a, if you create a vaccine and now you've got a virus and now you've patented it, what purpose does a patent serve on a virus other than if somebody's trying to create a stream of revenue and then create the problem and then have a solution exclusively for that problem? <laughs> yeah, you, you ask the question, that's like a detective would ask, and you'd go right to the heart of uh, you know the whole source of this thing, and you realize the virologists have become the criminal class in modern medicine. Yes, they, they have been the ones that have been most uh, lauded and applauded, but wrongly so because they're completely ignorant of the law of the terrain. Or, or they were appointed, and I think that to blame the virologists would be too naive on our part, Robert. We'd have to look at it beyond that because, again, mm -hmm. these are, I don't know whether you know any virologists. I do, and these guys, unfortunately, have, uh, these are the guys that you feel sorry for at a party and you go to and start talking to so that, you know, they don't <laughs> yes. stop staring inside that drink. I mean, they're just not. It's not, so a, not a happy place. Yeah, no. Yeah, yeah, and I apologize to anybody if, I'm, if I've uh, insulted them inadvertently, but my point is these are not social mavericks, and these aren't people that are outgoing party mongers, and these aren't people that are necessarily motivated by large sums of money. I think that this is more 
again, coming back to the pharmaceutical industrial complex, they have an agenda. They appoint the virologists to see the ones that they can manipulate to tell them do this, do that, do the other. Yes. They make them feel important, and then these guys say, okay, you know, I'm an important guy. This is the first time I've ever gotten any attention, and I'll do this. Or they're uh, duped into it. You know, they're, they're told that this is to determine something beneficial for mankind, whereas, in fact, it's being created for financial gain, and it's going to be detrimental to mankind. So. Yeah, and we know that many of these uh, highly intelligent and from skilled scientists, they get caught up in a place that they realize the moment they start questioning certain consensus realities, even though the science demands that they do so, they find that they're out of jobs or they're out of their, let's say, funding, and there's been a very powerful way to manipulate science and limit its inquiry. Absolutely. It, it, it absolutely is. You're absolutely right hit that one again on the head. Yeah, and it, it is it is sad. You know, I, I, I'm sad for people of great intelligence and ability perhaps to move things forward, processes, processes of discovery that are limited. They're forced into horse blinders if they want a job. And they're, they're ridiculed if they oppose it. Yeah. I mean, you know, look. They're, they're ostracized. They're, they're demonized sometimes and minimalized if they don't accept the powers of be and tell them. You even see this in regular, you know, forget about even the research aspect or the, or the uh, in this particular case, like with the virologists or the various other types of uh, didactic research individuals would have to deal with. Even in clinical medicine, even in basic like uh, scenarios in a clinic, you would see the same type of issue. If you have a basic family practice with four doctors and one of them talks about using magnesium as first line, somebody's hypertensive or has some type of a yes. um, cardiac issue, they will be minimalized. They will be ridiculed. I actually had this happen. I saw this in the emergency room. When I came into the emergency room uh, in Richmond Memorial, I'm sorry, in um, Stan Memorial Hospital in Albemarle, there was a doctor in family practice. He's a very good friend of mine still to this day, and he's an integrative doctor. At, at that time, I, you know, I was in conventional medicine, and I remember they were laughing about this doctor, Clarence Norris, Dr. Clarence Norris, and I hope he's listening to this because I remember when I first heard his name, and I thought, why are you guys you know, making fun of him? And they said, oh, Dr. Norris thinks giving anybody, anybody who has any kind of ailment, giving them a tablespoon of magnesium citrate will solve the problem. And they all giggle like schoolgirls. And I'm thinking, well, what are you guys laughing about? You know, because a lot of the people coming to the emergency room, they have an issue with, I mean, we, we, first of all, if they've got a cardiac issue, magnesium is going to be very beneficial. But as a society, we're yes. magnesium deficient. And I became very good friends with him. And, in fact, my nickname in that same emergency room uh, a year later was Dr. Magnesium. As soon as I came on <laughs> shift, they automatically called the uh, the pharmacy, the ER pharmacy. Yes. And said, Dr. McCarthy's working. I need 10 vials of magnesium sulfate nice. up to the ER. Because that was the fact the main, if I was on duty, yes. that was the main component that the, the standing orders that we had for anybody that was complaining of cardiac pain, chest pain, when EMS, paramedics would pick them up, was to take magnesium sulfate and D5W, 100 cc's, standing orders. Anybody with chest pain, they got that first line. Hey, and it's still good perspective today. Dr. Carolyn Dean loves you for that, by the way. Hey, we we have got it. We've done it. The Advanced Medicine Monday is, is over. But no, you can continue to receive the gift of healing because all of these are available. Link through robertscottbell.com to medicalrewind.com. Everything that Dr. Batar and I have done. And we've got upcoming seminars we'll be letting you about in the coming weeks. So stand by for that. Dr. Batar, thanks for being with me as always. Robert, it's always good to be with you. And I'll talk to you next week. Yes, and he helped me once again to remind everybody out there that the power to heal is yours. 
Robert Scott the Bell Robert Show. Robert Scott Bell Show.